All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Arash Beboudi. Arash is a machine learning researcher at Qualcomm Technologies. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Arash, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to the chat. I'd love to have you start out by sharing a little bit about your background and what led you into the field of machine learning. Sure. Well, you know, my background is information theory and mathematical signal processing on the one hand. Uh, my PhD was about basically deriving channel theoretic uh, bounds on information capacity of certain cooperative networks under channel uncertainty, so kind of mathematical PhD work. And after that, kind of transitioned into in the field of compressed sensing. It's kind of quite fascinating to me because the core problem in compressed sensing was you have certain observations of an unknown signal, but you don't have enough observation to recover it fully. So you have to rely on some prior assumption about the signal. And the question is, if you know that prior, what is a good, how you can recover your signal and what are theoretical bounds on basically sample complexity, how many observations you need and, and all that. So kind of dealing with that notion of a structure Structure, signal structure and how this can be used in different kind of inverse problems. That was very, very interesting for me and kind of I was working on that afterward. But then, of course, deep learning comes with a lot of interesting promises and challenges. So it's immediately I said, oh, you know, maybe, you know, with deep learning can even do a better job of working with the structures and learning better recovery algorithms. And even from theoretical side, I was very interested in understanding like mysteries of deep learning. So I think kind of that dragged me into deep learning. But but funny enough, uh, on a side note, I, when I was undergrad, I, one of my main interests was, was philosophy and kind of, I, did that in parallel during whole my, my whole life. And uh, when I was doing my PhD in parallel, I also did kind of a master degree on that. And kind of a lot of topics that I kind of studied there, uh, okay, philosophy of mind, language, and all that, the question of meaning, intelligence, consciousness, all that's kind of re-emerged in this field of machine learning again. And kind of, it became a very exciting area to work on. Hmm. And kind of, I'm happy that all my interests are coming together within this book. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. You're at obviously Qualcomm AI Research now. What are your primary research interests on that team? I talked about information theory and compressed sensing and mathematical signal processing and wireless communication. Of course, Shannon theory is mathematical theory of communication. Mm -hmm. So communication and wireless communication in particular has always been very also interesting to me. And I worked on that also as a kind of a motivation for a lot of problems I was formulating. And so what we're trying to do here, we're basically looking at wireless communication from machine learning perspectives, put it that way. We're trying to understand how we can design new machine learning architectures useful for different wireless tasks and how we can improve different parts of wireless system design using machine learning. And this kind of relates to the current technologies that we have and the next te technologies that are going to come. And uh, so the, the research that we have, I, I like to call it wireless AI research. So it's a kind of a doing machine learning research for wireless communication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the papers that we're going to talk about that you have had accepted at ICML this year is in the same field of compressed sensing that has come up a few times. Sounds like it's an area that you're continuing to explore pretty deeply. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the inverse problems, uh, they're everywhere. We kind of, uh, from medical imaging to all sorts of kind of, we can talk about drug discovery problems by, uh, you know, protein unfolding is another example. So we can find a lot of areas where inverse problems are important. And wireless communication is actually full of those problems, like uh, from channel estimation to other topics. So you can find a lot of inverse problems. And uh, yeah, I mean, the compress sensing is definitely like a, a core interest for me. Now, I've talked to some of your colleagues about some of the work that other teams are doing in compression. Can you, how does compression and the setting there compare with compressed sensing? Is it the same? Is it different? It is different. So in compressed sensing, the idea is that you want to efficiently sense the environment in order to infer something. In compression, the idea is you have a source, you have an information source, and you want to efficiently compress it. So there is no sensing medium there. The only thing that's important is how well you compress and reconstruct your information source. In compressed sensing, the, the idea is how you sense the medium, given the constraint that is given to you, you, you do not choose that, and then how well you can reconstruct based on the observation you have. So conceptually, they might be connected, but uh, they're kind of a parallel field, I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so with that said, what is the motivation for your ICML paper, which is called Equivalent Priors for Compressed Sensing with Unknown Orientation? Great. So let me start with uh, first talking about generative priors and uh, its relation to compressed sensing. Okay. This is probably a good start. So then I talked about the structure. So assuming some prior about the structure of the signal, for example. A typical example of a structure in classical compressed sensing was sparsity. You assume that your signal is sparse in a given basis, for example. And then you use that to some sort of L1 minimization to basically solve, find your signal. Now, with deep learning, with generative models specifically, we noticed that actually generative models provide a way of parameterizing the space of signals of interest using basically the, the latent space of, of the generative model. So, and specifically, if you cannot tractably represent a signal, in this case, let's say images, if you cannot tractably represent them, represent a prior, generative models provide a way of parameterizing that. Mm -hmm. And there was a work by uh, Bora and co-authors around 2015 that showed actually you can use generative priors, generative models, and do gradient descent on the latent space of that generative model in order to estimate the signal. So generative models in that sense provide structural prior on your signal. And it, the paper showed quite interesting results, and it was quite an encouraging work with theoretical guarantees on top, which is always good to have. <laughs> and so that was the original work. Now, a lot of work came afterwards, basically using flows, using different techniques for doing a better job in this thing, or extending it into different type of nonlinear problems and various extensions. Some challenges that these models have are, let's say, convergence and latency. Meaning that sometimes when you do gradient descent on the latent space, you might need to restart the whole process because it's not converging. So the convergence and the way you optimize your problem can become an issue. And especially if you're interested in low latency, let's say solutions, that can become a bottleneck. 
So there were actually some works about how you can effectively invert a generative model. And actually, Alex Dimakis from the TU Austin had some follow-up works. Actually, it was a quarter of the original paper, some follow-up works on kind of a layer-by-layer inversion and some, some other tricks following that as well. So that's one part, like how, why generative models are relevant for compressed density. Mm-hmm. The other part was, okay, in many applications, when we want to measure a signal, the signal might go under some transformation, let's say some rotation before the measurement. This can happen, a typical example is a cryo-electron microscopy. So cryo-electron microscopy is a way of uh, basically taking a picture of a biomolecule. You can look at it like that. And the problem is that when you take this picture, of course, the picture is very noisy and all that, but the molecule that you have is in an unknown orientation, right? Mm -hmm. And if you have multiple pictures, these orientations are not the same, so are not aligned. In general, you can think of a signal that you actually can turn a generative model on, but the orientation of that signal might change before the measurement. So you might say, okay, you know, what I can do probably is I try to first figure out the orientation and then reconstruct the signal and or doing it iteratively, basically finding, solving the problem like that. What we thought was, oh, why do we need to kind of separate orientation discovery and the signal recovery? So we can do this jointly. And the way we can do it is we can train a generative model that has already this information embedded in it. Of course, we can say what we can do, we can get a generative model, use data augmentation, and basically now we have it already there somehow because we have seen all these different orientations. Mm-hmm. But when we know that we want to have this steerable, basically transformable latent space, equivariance models are excellent candidates. So what are equivariance models? So the equivariance models are models that when you transform the input of the network according to certain group transformations, let's say rotation. When you rotate the input, then the features that are output of that network also rotate. So therefore, a rotation, a change of orientation at the output correspond to the change of orientation as the input. This also imposes some sort of a structure on the latent space of your generative model. So the main idea was, let's try to use equivariance priors so that we can just solve this whole whole problem altogether. Awesome, awesome. Now I've talked with the colleagues in the past of yours about equivariance as well. I think in the context of those previous conversations, we we're primarily talking about supervised types of problems. Has equivariance been applied to generative types of problems previously? Yeah, this is a good question. Actually, the the answer is yes. The answer is in context of the generative model, there have been some works that try to incorporate this equivariance into the model architecture. So, but the way we kind of did that in our work, the kind of equivalent VAE that we built, as far as we know, and as far as I know, this is the first time that we have such an equivalent VAE uh, constructed. But at the end of the day, I think another example that comes to my mind is the kind of equivalent normalizing flows. That's something that has been published, I think, last year. So one challenge of those works are they're very nice and elegant, but kind of scaling them up to the to kind of a problem that wants to have low complexity, low latency, which is actually the, our main motivation at the end of the day. Scaling them or bringing them to that type of problem, it becomes a bit challenging. For example, for normalizing equivariant normalizing flows, 
you had to work with this type of kind of a continuous time and uh, networks like ODE type uh, models and training those models are difficult scaling them up are, are difficult and what we're targeting here is just having a nice small equivalent models that can perform already quite well compared to counterparts got it and so Assuming you started with a traditional VAE type of an architecture, how did you evolve it to be equivariant based or to understand equivariance? Yeah, so equivariant, uh, you know, so variational autoencoders, you have an encoder network and decoder network, right? Like the decoder network is the network that's going to be used for our recovery task because that is the the generator part and we were going to use the latent space. So we want the output orientation change so basically transformation of our signal translates into the transformation of our input so what we want is that the generator of the network should be equivariant so the, the decoder network will pick an equivariant network off the shelf from the existing models now what happened to the encoder network the encoder network basically in, in va gives parameters of your approximate posterior so if you're assuming that you have a gaussian type of serial, you have a mean value and you have a covariance matrix, basically. Now, when you rotate the image, you since this the, your encoder network is going to give you distribution, basically approximate posterior, you will get a new distribution when the input is rotated. What should be this distribution? So the random consider random variable corresponding to the untransformed image right? Mm -hmm. When you transform that image, you want to get a new random variable, a random variable that is the transformed version of that. So basically, if the distribution that you want, you want it to correspond to the transformed random variable. So that would let me know. Now, what happens to the parameters of this distribution? Let's just start with mean value. The mean value, as we wanted, is when we transform a random vector, with the rotation matrix, for example, then the mean value of that random vector is also transformed according to a, to a rotation matrix. So this basically means that the part of the network giving us mean value should be equivalent. So that is also uh, figured out. The challenge is for the covariance matrix. When you transform your random vector according to a matrix, let's say A, you have A times your random variable, random vector. The covariance matrix changes according to A times the previous covariance matrix times A Hermitian. So we do not have like the classical equivariance anymore because if you transform your input according to A, the covariance part should be transformed according to A, A Hermitian. First conclusion out of that is that we cannot use the typical diagonal covariance matrix assumption used in VAs. So we need to consider like a full covariance matrix. Another thing is how we're we going to build this kind of a, this transformation, this type of network. So the way we did that, we said, okay, chorus matrix is a positive definite matrix. So we can already transform, you'd write it down as a V, V transpose. And we considered other ways of parameterizing that as well. So we write the covariance matrix, the positive covariance matrix as V, V transpose. And then if that V matrix is equivalent, so it's just transformed, then the whole covariance matrix satisfies the condition that we want. So we built 
the decoder network giving us the encoder network giving us the covariance metrics in a way that that part of the network is equivalent and it just parameterizes basically the V presentation. There are other ways of doing that, but we tried that also in the paper, more or less they give same same performance, all of them. And does the way that you approach that, does that apply constraints to your inputs? There is no constraint necessary on the, on the input. So the only thing you need to know is how the transformation that you're interested in, let's say rotation, acts on the input space. That's what you need to know in order to build your equivalent networks. You need to know how the input is transformed so that the equivalence is built into the architecture. That's the only thing you need to know. Otherwise, you don't need to put any constraint on the input. Mm -hmm. And so how did you go about assessing the performance of the architecture? So what we did is said, okay, let's, of course, we are interested in recovering signals with unknown orientation, right? So we said, let's try to pick like a powerful flow networks with the most powerful flow network that we have, normalizing flow network that we can have, like a typical real MVP setup. And let's try to iteratively find the orientation and kind of a latent space, latent code by just a gradient descent on the latent. This is not the, this is the so-called vanilla or like a baseline that we had. And then we compare that with our VAE, equivalent VAE method. We had other baselines as well, but I think the normalizing flow is the most interesting part because it usually gives the best result in terms of reconstruction. So we noticed that our equivalent VAE is much simpler, it's much smaller, and it already gives same or better result than flows in many cases, which is more complicated. And then you have to do all those iterative assumptions and all that. And then something interesting can happen as well, that even if the orientation is known, so, or you don't have any random orientation, actually equivalent VAEs turn out to, to perform quite well in the, in this task. And uh, our conjecture is that actually the equivariance adds certain additional structure on the latent space that hmm. makes the life of optimization algorithm much easier. And therefore, you know, we can do a lot with it. So that was an interesting thing. So the gain was not only in terms of reconstruction quality, not only in terms of uh, finding unknown orientation, but also in terms of latency, convergence, which are kind of important metrics for, for these generative priors. I, I really think like lattice and convergence are, due, are metrics that are, are quite important for applicability of these methods in practice, especially if we could target something that requires, you know, implementation on edge device, low latency constraint, yeah. that is quite, quite crucial. You talked about wireless and cryo-electron microscopy as the use cases in the microscopy case. There's kind of this obvious image that you're trying to work with. In wireless, are, are we talking about applying this to images that happen to be transmitted wirelessly, or is there some application of the same idea to broader wireless problems? That's an excellent question. Actually, so let, let's just start with the new kind of frequency band that is being introduced in 5G. It's kind of a, a millimeter wave frequency bands. Mm -hmm. So when we go higher in frequency in for uh, wireless communication, what happens is that the beams become a very, very, basically you need to use directional beams to get the performance that you want. 
uh, there, these are some artifacts of like having a smaller antenna aperture and all that. So to summarize, the whole thing is that you just cannot rely on kind of a rich scattering environment that you have in order to get signals that, that you want. You need to really be able to steer your beams, your antenna beams, in a, in a direction that kind of gets the most energy and also direct your beams and design your beams accordingly. Now, if you want to do that on your device, and kind of I leave it at a high level like that, if you want to do that on device, you're usually kind of keeping your device and you're talking and then you put it on the, on the table or walk around. Your device is permanently rotating, right? Yeah. But the environment is the same environment. It's just the way you view it is changing. So it's kind of undergoes some, some transformation. Mm -hmm. So that is the main, uh, main idea in wireless communication. So that's why kind of having incorporating those geometric priors in our design, wireless design becomes really, really crucial, especially when we talk about these high frequencies. Awesome. Speaking of wireless, what are some other research areas that you're pursuing in that domain? Well, I think, look at wireless communication. At the end of the day, we are working with, with laws of physics there. Mm -hmm. You have our, you have Maxwell equations. And at the end of the day, there is an electromagnetic wave moving from one point to another, undergoing a lot of, lot of effects in an environment, reflected from different objects, scattered, diffracted, and all that. That's the underlying nature of wireless communication is, is kind of physics, right? So modeling these complicated propagation effects precisely, real precisely, it's a challenging task. And the way people traditionally build models, at least so far, so you have two classes of models for wireless. One is a kind of a ray tracing type models, which is based on just kind of deterministically following paths of the ray. And you have what I can call a statistical channel models that kind of build an average case statistical model that you put a distribution on the channel gains that you have on the delays that you get, and you work with those hard-coded assumptions. Now, with machine learning, we know that with using data, we can build much better models if we can just use those models to build either better statistical channel models or better kind of a more especially consistent channel models. So one of the research areas that is quite important for us is exactly this channel model, which basically is about kind of learning physics. You know, this is a kind of a topic, it's not limited to wireless. You know that there are other folks working on neural networks, a physics-inspired neural network or mm -hmm. neural networks that can learn physics. So that's, that's a topic that is quite interesting. And one thing that we did was let's try to gather very simple field data, not requiring really kind of hard, really like a special devices. And let's build a generative model on that, that generates the underlying channel. So it implicitly learns the underlying channel. So that's kind of one of the works we had and we continue to work on, on those topics as well. The other thing that is quite interesting is wireless perception. So again, our visual perception is still based on electromagnetic waves. It's just a different frequency. Of course, it's much higher frequency than what we're working right now in wireless. But on the other hand, in wireless, we might have access to much more details, much more refined concepts than what we probably have visually. So the question of wireless perception and sense is quite important as well. Like how we can build right now, let's say machine learning models that can perceive the environment through the lens of wireless signal. 
And also that was one of the topics that we were working on, basically trying to solve a simple slam problem by incorporating physics of propagation to the machine learning model and try to learn that from a wireless signal. So these are these are interesting topics. Slam being the same kind of slam that comes up in robotics, simultaneous location and mapping, I think. Precisely, yeah, some sense of localization and mapping. So that's exactly the same thing. But this time you want to do it with wireless signal. Mm. Awesome, awesome. So kind of returning to ICML, what are some other papers that you and your team or other teams at Qualcomm are presenting there? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of very interesting works from my, my colleagues at Qualcomm. And, you know, the first paper that I want to mention is a paper that has uh, some kind of oral presentation paper this year at Qualcomm. And it is about uh, basically oscillation of quantization over training. So basically, and dealing with that, those problems. So to give a little bit of background on that, again, you, you probably talked with some other colleagues before that they work on quantization and compression of neural networks. So we know that- It's come up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so we know that kind of with quantization, let's say with the post-training quantization techniques, you train a network, you go and quantize it, you can actually get very good performance, decent performance with 8-bit quantization out of these networks, right? Mm -hmm. So this is quite, quite, quite interesting. However, if you want to push this quantization down to four bits, then just post-training quantization techniques are not sufficient for pushing the performance. So you need to basically do what people call quantization of your training. This basically means that the quantization noise that kind of is added because of quantization operation, you include that in the training process. So what you're doing is that you quantize and then you backprop through the quantization operation. Mm -hmm. So the network can learn to minimize those errors as it's training. Exactly, exactly. Now, when you backprop through the quantization operation, basically the technique that's used is straight through estimator, like one of the techniques. So it's what? Straight through estimator. Straight through estimation. Okay. So the, the straight through estimator, what it does is that you basically have your shadow weights basically weights that they live in uh, real valued numbers and they get quantized by quantization operation and gives you your quantized value. And now when you backprop at inference, you work what only with quantization, quantized values. So that's the ultimate network. However, when you're training it and you're backpropping through that, you the straight through estimator is Roughly speaking means, okay, forget about the quantization operation that you have here, just directly backprop through the shadow weight. That was the real number. So that is the rough idea. Okay, that already helps kind of overcoming some of the difficulties. However, it is not sufficient. And one interesting phenomenon that can happen is that when shadow weights are close to quantization threshold, so basically threshold between two different quantization beams, they start to actually oscillate around that. And if you look at the quantized value now, they oscillate between different quantization beams. And this oscillatory behavior has been reported before, and it's kind of a peculiar phenomenon. The interesting thing about this phenomenon is that, first of all, the learning rate, but by choosing different learning rate, you cannot control this oscillation. The oscillation, the amplitude might change, but the frequency of oscillation remains. And what my colleagues noticed that is actually this frequency is dependent on the gap between 
the best, the, the ground truth value, the optimal value, and the quantized value. If the gap is larger, that oscillation is going to be bigger. If the gap is a smaller, oscillation can be smaller. So something like that. The more details are, are in the paper. But they observed such such a this behavior, and then what are some drawbacks of this, this oscillatory behavior? The first drawback is a discrepancy in batch norm statistics, meaning that the batch norm statistics that you compute during training is going to be different from what you will get at test because of this, this oscillation. So what you need to do, you need to recompute the batch norm statistics, which manages to solve this discrepancy issue. However, the problem is not only that. Actually, it has negative impact on the optimization process as well. This basically means that if you look at the optimization process, this oscillation actually prevents network to converge to a better local minimum and gets better performance. So it is important to kind of overcome this oscillatory behavior. So my, my colleagues actually proposed two methods. And on that last point, the idea is that beyond just resulting in a larger error, it will prevent convergence altogether? Or convergence to a good, good point. Mm -hmm. So you might converge to something that is not a good place. So mm. that is the main issue. So the other thing is, okay, what are some solutions? How you can actually deal with that issue? So my colleagues actually proposed like two methods. The first one is a kind of a dampening regularizer. The idea is mm -hmm. when you're close to quantization threshold, you're going to see this oscillatory behavior. So what if you put a regularizer on training that pushes the weights to be close to the center of beans instead of quantization threshold? And that already is quite helpful. The other approach that they have is about freezing the weights. What does that mean? This means if you see that the weights are oscillating, mm -hmm. then you freeze them. You just don't update them because you know that this is going to have a negative impact, but there are subtleties in the way you do that. First of all, how do you decide if you freeze weight or not? You have to monitor the oscillatory behavior and oscillation frequency. And you basically have to compute that oscillation frequency, which they do by using some kind of exponential moving average, and then put a threshold on that. Are you tracking this and managing this on a weight by weight basis, or is it? Are you looking at, you know, some notion of oscillation that's kind of vector based? So, as far as I know, this is weight by weight basis. Okay. Again, you know, I encourage everyone reading the papers and all, <laughs> all details to be make sure I'm not destroying my colleagues' work. But I think it's a weight by weight because you compute it in a weight by weight basis. So, at at the end of the day, what happens there is that. You monitor that after a certain threshold, you just freeze it, and then you freeze it to a value that kind of occurred most. So there's actually like a mechanism for selecting that. As a matter of fact, it manages with this technique, you can actually bring the quantization with down to, let's say, four bits, three bits for, let's say, mobile net efficient net type architectures on image net data, which is oh, wow. a quite remarkable result. Wow. And is oscillation, you know, to your knowledge, has oscillation been the primary impediment to reducing the level that we're able to quantize to? Or are there other key challenges there? Yeah, I mean, again, I have to give a caveat that uh, <laughs> my, my colleagues are definitely more knowledgeable in that area. But uh, that definitely was one of the main factors, for sure. Mm -hmm. Because after fixing that oscill oscillation problem, kind of, you know, you could do, could do a great job that you couldn't do before. So this is definitely one important factor. Yeah. Awesome. And there are another couple of papers that your colleagues are presenting. Absolutely. 
one on personalization. Exactly. We can rapidly cover some of those as well. So on personalization, there's this paper of uh, my colleagues on variational on-the-fly personalization paper. When you deploy a model on edge device, sometimes you need kind of personalization of that model specifically to the user that is using it. Let's say, for example, let's talk about the speech verification, right? You want to be able to personalize the machine learning model that you have for a specific user that is using that service, right? Now, there are some challenges for personalization. You really don't want to do on-device training because of the you don't know what's happening. You have to monitor everything, and it's kind of challenging. But you want to do it in an unsupervised way, right? You want to do it few shots. So you really don't want to get that much label from the user, and you want to do it with few samples. You don't want to basically send data back to a, to a source. So you really want to be able to do it on-device and kind of without requiring retraining and all that. Then this personalization problem was formulated using a variational principle. The idea is that you actually train a so-called variational hyper-personalizer. So we can okay. call it that. So there's this, there's this hyper-personalization basically network that gets those few, those few samples and basically based on that updates weights of the model according to those samples. So it's just a way of adjusting the distribution of those weights to the model that you're getting. So, of course, there are more details in, in the paper, but the core idea that we have is we have there is that this is the first time that you can do on-the-fly personalization. And this is, I think it's very, very important for edge device machine learning model deployment. Awesome. Awesome. And the last one that we wanted to cover was on kind of causal identifiability for or from temporal intervene sequences yeah or citrus what's that one about <laughs> sounds <Yes>. juicy <laughs> indeed indeed that's a 40 page paper so i also encourage everyone to to go <laughs> and read all the details it's a very exciting topic i mean we all know that causality and identifying causal factors are quite quite important so the, the core idea of the paper is that you so first you represent your causal factors as a multidimensional vector. So that's the first thing. This is a representation of causal factors. The second thing is that data that you have and based on which you try to solve this problem, this causal identification, is it works based on access to a temporal sequence in which there are some intervention is happening. So basically there are some interaction with uh, the scene. So through that you can actually figure out some causal factors out of those interactions and out of the temporality that, that you have. Then there is a VA model is proposed in the latent space of that you can disentangle causal factors represented as these multidimensional factors using having access to, to those things. And one interesting thing about the paper is that this is just not like a you can use that VAE, but as a matter of fact, if I give you an arbitrary autoencoder, right, pre-trained autoencoder without knowledge of this, then it is possible to train a normalizing flow that manages to disentangle causal factors from the latent space of that autoencoder, hmm. which is actually quite an interesting thing. So mm -hmm. definitely encourage everyone to go and read the details of the paper. Awesome. And before we finish up, we also wanted to touch on workshop that you're participating in your colleagues. This one on Bayesian optimization? Yes, exactly. So 
That's also an interesting paper by my colleagues on uh, Bayesian optimization for macro placement. So what is macro placement? So if you look at chip placement problem, you basically have a macro units. Those are, those are memory blocks that you have. Mm -hmm. And then you have standard cells that you can put on, on the chip. So usually you design, place all those objects in chip under some constraints. These constraints basically are basically, you can say, power performance area. Those are very important constraints. But to evaluate these for each placement that you choose, to evaluate those that the objective function that you have is very costly because it has to go like a lengthy simulation and kind of compute everything. So you really cannot integrate that in the optimization loop. So you have to use some sort of a black box optimization for that. And people kind of traditionally use simulated annealing type methods, but Bayesian optimization actually provides an elegant way, an alternative way of solving this problem. It's a combinatorial optimization problem. So it's a very it's a tough problem. And Bayesian optimization, roughly like you build a surrogate model and you have access to use a Gaussian process to build a surrogate model and basically integrate that, uh, use that for your optimization. So the contribution of the paper is basically solving this macro placement problem using Bayesian optimization. Also very, very interesting work. And yeah, of course, quite important for what we do. Got it. And that one's at the Real ML workshop. Do you know what the the Real ML acronym is? I, I cannot remember. Okay. But uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, I think it has to something to do with active learning uh, for real world uh, systems, something like that. Uh, real world active learning and machine learning, or something like that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I cannot remember. I mean, those are complicated names sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Arash, in terms of your research on kind of machine learning for wireless, what are some of the future directions that you're excited about? Yeah, I would say I think I touched a little bit on this modeling part. The the fact that channel modeling, let's say wireless channel modeling, at the end of the day, is about learning physics. Mm -hmm. neural networks that are integrated with uh, this bias coming from physics, or they can learn part of physics. That's a very, very interesting and exciting research direction for me. And it's kind of we investing a lot of time on that. I hope that a couple of months, uh, you know, I can be back and talk about that. Awesome. <laughs> but so that's a very interesting research topic. And I think it can be quite game changer. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining and sharing a bit about what you're up to and your work, your presentations at ICML. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Arash. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.